Welcome to the Fortean News Podcast with your host, James Coppert. Hi, hi. How you all doing? What you're going to hear is uh, me a little bit different to the normal shows because I was proper excited and geeked out because... Anyone that's listened to the podcast last year will, will know how much I, I adored this book, um, Blythe Spirits by S.D. Tucker. Um, not just one of the best paranormal books I've read, but one of the best kind of non-fiction books I've read in terms of its its research that's put into it, the examples that's put into it, the dialogue in it, the entertainment, the humour. It's all there. It's just an, an incredible book. Anyone that's even got a passing kind of interest in the poltergeist even if it's to completely disprove the poltergeist whether you want to uh, prove the the existence or you're a complete skeptic this is still a perfect book for anyone so even if you've got vague interest to someone that's obsessed you, you will enjoy this book and i guarantee you this this interview is incredible this guy is amazing um you will want to uh, go out and, and purchase the book so S.D. Tucker, as some of you will already know, is a regular contributor to uh, 40 and Times magazine. He's written books on numerous things from science to economics to British eccentrics. And um, you, you're just going to really find it entertaining. Now, what I will say is you haven't got everything, trust me, from this interview. The, the examples that you mentioned in this book is probably about 1%. Many Poltergeist books catalogue different Poltergeist activity. Um, this book doesn't. It's almost a philosophical book on what the poltergeist means and the, as the trickster. And it is interspersed like an encyclopedia with countless examples of that. But it's it's a whole narrative on what that means, what it means to kind of humanity and how we view that, that, that makes the kind of the concept of the book. So it isn't just a, oh, this, this case happened here and this case happened there. This is more of a narrative with the poltergeist activity interspersed within it, um, to kind of give those examples the amount that is in there is is huge as well so so don't just think you're getting everything that's in the book in this interview you you really aren't this is just a a little skim on the surface of the subject um before you go out so thank you so much to uh sd tucker and to his publisher for um for organizing this interview i hope you enjoy it as much as i did and um yeah any you want to comment on it or anything it's uh, 40 news podcast at gmail.com as uh we're all on social media as well so without further ado please welcome sd tucker Welcome to the 40N News Podcast, everyone. Um, we are interviewing here uh, someone I'm very excited to talk about. I picked up his book after reading an article in 40N Times and picked up the book and was absolutely blown away, as anyone that's listened to the show knows. Um, I've been raving about this book. So I'm very excited today to have on the 40N News Podcast, S.D. Tucker, author of Blythe Spirits, An Imaginative History of the Poltergeist. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So my first question... I enjoyed it. Oh, I thought it was absolutely amazing. It's um, It was just so well-researched, entertaining and unique as well, which which made it, you know, such a such a brilliant read and stand out from all the other books out there. Oh, thanks, yeah. I did try to do something different with it. Some people might say it's weird, but I think that's a good thing. It's, it's definitely just... it's. There's, there's almost a story wrapped up, wrapped up in, in the research. There's There's like a... A narrative and, and journey that you travel on as a listener. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, uh, it's it's not just like um, a, a recap of cases, uh, like um, 
there's, there's kind of like a main thesis to it, I suppose. Absolutely, and we're definitely going to get into that. So, um, my, my first question really is, what what made you decide to to write a book on the poltergeist? Uh, well, basically, I've always been fascinated by them. I've always thought that poltergeists are the most interesting of um, of the phenomena. They, they seem to me to be the ones which are most likely to be real, because unlike uh, many other things, like apparitions or whatever, um, or many cases of UFOs and such like, they actually seem to leave behind some kind of physical evidence. I mean, we might get on to later how dubious and perhaps deliberately dubious some of the physical evidence is, but nonetheless, if, say, someone sees a ghost then you know, or an apparition, in the sense of an apparition or, or whatever, then you're um, essentially relying on a witness test in there, aren't you? Whereas if someone says, well, a poltergeist, for example, I don't know, um, smashed the cup on a small level, you are left with a physical evidence of a smashed cup aren't you? If, if you have witnesses if, a if someone says a poltergeist lit a fire then you know there's evidence of burned things so it can't be just dismissed as, as misperception or hallucination like some people might say about um, flying saucers or apparitions um, be because with a poltergeist you'd, you'd imagine you know if there is this physical evidence there then it's either real what someone said or it's completely fake from the beginning it, 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 there's no room for uh well the, 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 the less room for, for saying that it's simply a misperception or whatever so that always interests me and also simply it's the most bizarre fertile phenomenon i always found and the most amusing and entertaining many of the stories made me laugh more than anything else and i, I just have an appetite for the bizarre and the, 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 the stranger it is, the better. So that, that's what's always fascinating me about poltergeists. And I've always been interested in mythology and folklore. And I read a book about a trickster called um, Trickster Makes This World about, oh, I don't know, 15 or so years ago. The, the, the trickster figure from world mythology, you know, gods like Hermes, um, Mercury, uh, Loki, Prometheus, Robin Goodfellow, that, that, that kind of figure um, and reading through it I uh, began to notice a number of parallels between that and the poltergeist so that was that was the idea for it and I began just collecting research and stuff in my spare time and then eventually many years later managed to put it into a book so it was it was an idea I had a while back and I eventually managed to, to actually put it all down. Fantastic, and that, that's very much how the, the book kind of evolves, is the, the mythology and comparing the, the poltergeist as kind of a modern cultural phenomenon in, in how we view it as, as someone from the past, rather than in previously that different culturals saw it as different kind of gods and kind of entities and creatures. That's, that's kind of the, the journey of the book, isn't it? Well, yeah, I'd say so, because if you look at the, the, the trickster figure from world mythology, I mean, I don't know if listeners really know what, what that is, but it's, like as I say, um, gods like Hermes are, for instance, from um, North American Indian culture, stuff like um, Coyote or um, Raven, that kind of figure. Or maybe if you're looking in like popular culture these days, figures like Bart Simpson or Arthur Daly, Roger the Dodger, that, that kind of character, it's the the uh, uh, writer Paul Radin once called the, the trickster a figure foreshadowing the shape of man. It's kind of a personification of early humankind's sort of undifferentiated personality, halfway between the human and the animal. It's a, it's a kind of very 
difficult concept sometimes to grasp for some people, but it's kind of a constellation of, of personality traits um, to do with liminal areas or borderline areas. They're kind of half animal, half human, half stupid, half intelligent, um, half good, half evil, half wise, half half stupid. So, for instance, there's this case of Loki, who um, the, the, the Norse tricks the god, who's He's, he's very intelligent in the sense that he creates a fishnet, but then at the same time he's very stupid in the sense that he's then caught in his own uh, fishnet when he transforms into a fish. <laughs> so um, there's kind of um, that kind of level of mentality that's simultaneously stupid and intelligent, simultaneously truth-telling and lying, simultaneously good and evil. That's kind of in many ways, the, the characteristic personality of, of the poltergeist. So I did wonder whether perhaps in the past um, certain poltergeist phenomena may indeed have, have been attributed by ancient people to um, tricks to gods. Because, I mean, if you look at certain examples of tricks to gods, like um, Coyote, the North American one, which it's, it's um, basically he's sort of um, a human body with a an animal head on the top of the coyote. It's almost like a human's mind is trapped in an animal's body or, or vice versa. And if you look at certain poltergeist cases, then it, it, there, are, there are real parallels. Like, um, for instance, the main one is, is Jeff the Talking Mongoose, mm. um, one of the most famous poltergeists. I don't know, maybe you've talked about him on your program before, I don't know. But... Um, He's half human, half animal. He was supposed to haunt the Isle of Man in the 1930s, uh, the farmhouse of a family called the Irvings. And um, he was half human, half animal, just like the tricks to God, because he had he, he, he was supposedly, when he was seen, he was meant to look like a mongoose, and yet he had human hands and thumbs, and he could supposedly talk. Um, he was liminal. He was of a borderline area, much like the trickster himself was supposed to be. He lived inside the walls. You know, that's a, a liminal space, isn't it? A borderline space. Mm. It's neither kind of inside the house precisely nor outside it. Um, he could be generous. Like, for example, he'd kill rabbits and leave them as offerings. But at the same time, he could say, I'll kill you all if I wanted to, but I wouldn't. <laughs> he was supposed to shapeshift all the time. Um, again, that's kind of liminal and like a trickster. Tricksters are supposed to be characteristic shapeshifters. So sometimes he'd be seen as a weasel. Uh, sometimes as a tailless cat with tiger stripes and the head of a bulldog, so it was said. Um, he was solid and yet at the same time immaterial. I mean, you know, you, you couldn't catch him as such. Um, and yet at the same time, he was supposedly able to be stroked and allegedly he wanted to bit someone. <laughs> um, so he, he was very much like a, a trickster figure. His, his weird sense of humour, he was described in a recent book about him as having a weird squeaky voice like a radio comedian and saying weird kind of catchphrases like um, like uh, Arthur Atkinson character from the, from the Fast show, <laughs> just shouting out stuff like hard-boiled eggs, nuts, cracking them and eating, and a weird kind of Joe Pasquale-style squeaky voice, <laughs> which is, it just sounds absurd and kind of insane, but th th this is the kind of weird dissociated personality that a characteristic trickster figure from the past would have. He described himself as a typical, it's almost, I describe him as a, a typical freak in the sense that he's one of the most aberrant 
and yet simultaneously almost one of the most typical poltergeists of, of all kind of all time in the sense that he's my favorite poltergeist probably in the sense he's most absurd and outlandish and yet at the same time there is even though he's maybe the most extreme example of a poltergeist you can almost think of if indeed you want to call him a poltergeist at the same time certain of his characteristics are really characteristic of the poltergeist and the trickster so it's it's almost inherently paradoxical, which, again, is one of the main features of the trickster himself. He's kind of an embodiment of paradox in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. That, that philosophy kind of runs run through the book as well. A, a local kind of... I'm, I'm in North Yorkshire at the moment, and we have the Boggles, and uh, a, a, a bit like... Um, Jeffy, they, they live in the walls and they, they help with housework um, and unless you don't leave milk out for them and then they, they start smashing things up so again it's very much yeah, like that the, punishment and poltergeist Yeah, the, 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 it's like, I mean the, the old idea of the half-side furry it's, it's kind of an, um, a, a brownie slash bogart or boggle dichotomy isn't it because it, it, under its good aspect if you leave out the milk for the brownie or the, the, the household furry it'll it will do the housework and yet at the same time if you don't then um it'll smash things up and that's rather like the um the historic association between the poltergeist and teenage serving maids and um cleaners and so forth isn't it in the past when you're often dismissed as being just the antics of, of naughty nursemaids or um serving maids in in aristocratic houses or in farmhouses whereas if you look at them it's almost as if um, the child, uh, the, the teenage girl who's often employed in such a role, she's sort of acting the role of the brownie, isn't she? And if, mm. um, if you believe the kind of RSPK hypothesis, the idea of recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, that um, the poltergeist is sort of a projection of that teenage serving maid's um, mind into the outside world somehow, physically speaking. And it's almost like a kind of, um, she's the brownie, but she's the unwilling brownie because she doesn't like a job. It, it's boring, it's low status, it's low paid. Um, she's kind of rebelling against it by projecting the, the bog off or the bogle or the bogey or whatever you want to call it out into the world outside and dirtying the place up by smashing things, um, spilling stuff all over the place, setting fires, disarranging furniture, um, vandalizing the place. So she's supposed to be in a everyday social role, cleaning stuff up as the brownie. Um, as the Bogart, she projects the poltergeist outwards in that idea and um, kind of um, subverts the world order and turns it upside down, which again was another traditional imaginative function of, of, of the trickster who was also supposed to, to turn the world upside down and kind of remake it anew. I suppose in that sense, the kind of um, idea of the poltergeist as Brownie or Bogart does subvert the, the worldview in which a, a cleaning maid is supposed to tidy up a house and with her attendant poltergeist rebelling against it, she actually just dirties it up. So yeah, there, there probably is some kind of historical association there. I did actually write another book um, a couple of years back called The Hidden Folk, which compares poltergeists and furries and, and brownies and bogarts at a kind of greater length, but there's a, there's a bit about about that in in this book as well in the hidden in um five spirits. So yeah, I think there's a real connection there. That's fascinating, and and one one of the views that I really took from the book as well is that you almost saw the kind of poltergeist as this um the the thing to kind of 
totally discreate the version of reality and, and even you know bending the rules of physics that we know to create a new space where we, you can think kind of different viewpoints and challenge what is the status quo of, of thinking would you like would you like yeah, to talk I a little think, bit about that i think i think that's absolutely right because that, that is the kind of um traditional function of the um of the trickster figure, um, someone like Hermes. I mean, they're often inventors, aren't they? Like, like for example, I just mentioned before, Loki invented the uh, the fishnet, that kind of thing. Um, Prometheus, the, one of the Greek tricksters, he brought down the fire from heaven, didn't he? And um, he animated um, inert clay to transform it into living mankind. Um, but I think you can say that was the poltergeist in a kind of imaginative sense as well, because as you say, it does subvert the, the rules of science um, and kind of allows us access to a kind of new imaginative space in which perhaps those laws no longer apply. Uh, and yet even, it's interesting, even actual parapsychologists and um, investigators, they still try to kind of um, trap the poltergeist within some kind of cage of logic of science. Mm. For example, there was one called um, W.G. Rowe, uh, an eminent American investigator who investigated many cases and did much good work, but he, he was the kind of inventor of the idea of the RSPK hypothesis, or the inventor of that term. Yeah. Um, for instance, he'd, um, he wanted to kind of altergeist obey energetic laws. So, for instance, there was a case, um, the Miami Warehouse case, it was known as, in which there was a poltergeist which inhabited um, a, a kind of warehouse which stored all kinds of stuff like um, glassware, cups, glasses, that kind of thing. And there was a teenage worker there called Julio. And around him, um, glasses would shoot off the shelves and break and so forth. And Roel went there and he plotted out all of the, um, the trajectories of the, the glasses when he shot off. And he managed to work out, in his view, that, um, and it was apparently quite plausible for this case, that they centred around um, Julio in a kind of vortex pattern, and they obeyed a, a general rule of scientific law, and was the exponential decay function, whereby it's a common-sense law in that the further you are from an energy source, the, um, the less powerful that energy source would be. So, for instance... If you're sitting on the other side of the room from a fire, it's, it's less warm than if you're sitting next to it. And he thought that um, Julio was the centre of this vortex and that the closer the glasses were to him, the further he might shoot away or the more powerfully they might smash and, and vice versa. So he tried to make <clears throat> the trickster obey the laws of science. But, of course, the poltergeist doesn't obey such laws, it seems perfectly plausible for that one case but you could find any number of other cases where there appears to be no um, similar pattern relating to like this vortex idea which he came up with um, and it seems to me that if, if Hermes is kind of the main kind of trickster figure throughout history if he's kind of the main analogue for um, the poltergeist then in Greek mythology, Hermes' brother, twin brother, was Apollo, the god of who's god of um, the sun and the god of daylight, and the god of, imaginatively speaking, of science, because 
you know, science seeks to, to clarify things, doesn't it? Like in the Enlightenment, as, as they speak of, mm. whereas um, Hermes is more the god of night, or more specifically, the, the god of twilight. Not day, but the god of, not not of logic, metaphorically, as, as Apollo, the god of science and enlightenment might be, but the god of more illogical things. So they do lead you onto a space which is more confusing. The more you look at them, the less you understand, really. For example, there's a tale of Hermes where he steals Apollo's cattle, um, his brother's cattle, and in order to hide where he's taken them, he reverses the, um, the hooves of the back to front and he puts um, various leaves and stuff on them so that when you follow the track, when Apollo follows the tracks to try and find him, he's actually going in the opposite direction. There's an idea that Apollo is a decoder and Hermes is an encoder. And this path towards what he thinks is enlightenment that Apollo is is following, you know, when he's going along the path of the... Um, uh, of the stolen cattle, it actually takes him further away from enlightenment and further into into confusion. And it's kind of analogous to certain poltergeist evidence left behind them, like Jeff the Mongoose, for example. He left behind tracks, which you might think, well, that sounds like it might be evidence for them. But it's actually more confusing than anything, because if you look at the what the tracks were, they were from various animals. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that, that, that's just more confusing than he hadn't left behind any tracks at all. Mm. I mean, what, what, does this, what does this mean? Does it mean he was various animals at once? Or does it just mean it was a, an obvious hoax? But if it was a hoax, why would the hoaxes leave behind deliberately stupid evidence? It's, it's very confusing. And the more that you actually look into it, the less you understand um, I think these things are mysteries in the sense that things used to be mysteries in ancient Greece. The original use of the term, stuff like the Eleusinian mysteries, the um, the kind of old religious rites, you entered into them, you didn't solve them. It's not like a mystery like something that Sherlock Holmes had solved. It's mm. more a mystery that you enter into and you kind of gain some sense of what what, what the Greeks used to term aporia a kind of unsolvable paradox. And I think that that's the kind of realm that the poltergeist leads us into. It doesn't lead us into um, an area of solutions, but rather of the complete opposite. The more you study them, the less you understand. Absolutely. I, I've, I've been involved, I've had poltergeist activity my entire life, and, and which has led oh, me really? to... Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, it's not in every house I live in, strangely, or every place I visit, but things seem to amp up when, when I'm around, so that, especially when I was a teenager, I actually got banned from people's houses um, from visiting. Really? And, but like, what, what happened precisely? It's, it's um, so as, as a child, I had imaginary friends, but people would, would hear sometimes other, other sides my parents would hear other sides of the conversation and um, from behind the oh, door voices, yeah. yeah and and then but would open the door nothing was there to even as a toddler even um the, the most extreme example was the the wall becoming exceptionally hot and um parts oh. of rubble shooting off um to then i moved to uh, when we moved up north um the, there was regular kind of just your normal poltergeist activity from water yeah. suddenly appearing, flies, um, infestation of flies that who just came and disappeared to um, things flying around the room, hovering in midair, shaking in midair, um, apparitions to I moved to another house, there was nothing, and then somewhere else it started again. And then um, I, I went, came to a workplace that's, that was reputedly haunted for, we've, we've done some research yeah. for decades. And um, 
I started doing a lot more research and actually investigations. And one of the things that I really found was that the poltergeist always gave you evidence, but it was never enough evidence to prove it. It was always a question <laughs> yeah. mark. And the perfect kind of example I can give of that, in this, this, it's a youth centre I worked in that had dorms upstairs. And yeah. this one room in particular, they, they changed the locks, um, redid the alarm and everything, and still the, the room would get rearranged on, on the night. And furniture would be rearranged the bedding would all be pulled back the cleaner would go in in the morning set it all up again and weirdly um chips or to our american list is like potato chips um would um um french fry sorry would would appear as well under the beds and um it, it, it went on you know every every few nights the the, the least thing that would appear would be the the bedding to be pulled back and um so we thought we'd leave a camera in there for a few weeks and yeah. um, the the only thing the camera picked up was me walking in to set, to set it down and, and come back in to pick it up again. And we asked no one to go in the room and uh, still yeah. nothing happened. And the night we took it out, everything kind of occurred again. Yeah, that, 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 that's, a, that's an, um, quite an often a pattern, isn't it? Um, there's quite a lot of examples of that in the book, aren't there? About, um... Yeah. Uh, the, the, the kind of you know that idea of liminality I mentioned to do with the trickster. He's kind of um, you know a borderline thing. He's neither one thing nor the other. That it seems that the poltergeist seeks to maintain its own sense of liminality, and that's one of the key um, character, characteristics which make it seem like a trickster to me, because it kind of hovers on that uneasily on that borderline between real and not real, doesn't it? In the yeah. sense that you know you'd know that obviously it seems to be real, but at the same time, you know, if you're going to tell a skeptic, oh, well, we did put the camera in there, but um, it never worked apart from on the night when the camera wasn't there, yeah. you know what the response is going to be, don't you? Yeah, yeah. It's pretty obvious what they're going to say. I mean, the poltergeist isn't something that was going to manifest in a science lab, is it? It would seem. Yeah. You can, you can see even in stuff like, um, you know, when, I don't know what you what you find personally about this, but maybe you found the opposite because the patterns don't always apply. But when objects move, it does seem that in most cases they never actually seem initiating the flight, but they're sort of part way through it. If you see what I mean? Yeah, um, so yeah. Yeah. Do you find that as well? Or? Yeah, you'd never see anything, you know, one example, I was outside and we turned around and there was a bowl and it was hovering in midair. We didn't see the bowl come up from the ground. We just saw it kind of shaking in midair before it dropped to the ground. And again, yeah, with yeah. Uh, you'd always catch things in motion and never the actual, yeah. the, the inset yeah, but, of the but, instant. That's that kind of part of it, isn't it? In the sense mm. that um, it, it doesn't, it seems to be, it, it wishes to kind of almost, obscure the mechanism by which it works yeah. um, in, in, in some way. It's, it's, it's very strange, but some of the, some of the evidence left behind, it, it almost seems like um, a joke, doesn't it? In yeah. the sense that, um, you know, yeah, I've done this, but show this to somebody who's a skeptic and see what they think. Like, there was a black monk of Pontefract case um, in Yorkshire in the, in the 1960s which um, once left behind um, a giant bite mark in a, in a sandwich. And then if you show that to someone, say, oh, look, a ghost took a bite out of my sandwich, yeah. they're just going to laugh, aren't they? Uh, are you familiar with the, the South Shields case talk about in there? Um, happened within the early 2000s and in the northeast of England. Were, um, it's worth looking up the, the, 
there's a book called The South Shields Poltergeist. I don't know if you've ever read it or not. I haven't, no, no. Uh, it's, it's, it's worth reading. It's, it's very entertaining. Um, it's one of the most remarkable cases I've seen. But they've got these photographs in it, which provide um, like alleged evidence of the, of the thing being real. And um, to, there's, there's two photographs in particular, which, you know, if you believe it, you think, right, okay. But if you don't, you think, no, that's pathetic. So, for instance, one of the things which supposedly happened there was um, there was a lottery ticket which was ripped up, or a scratch card or which was ripped up, and then all of a sudden it wasn't ripped up. <laughs> and um, so there's a photograph of this, but it, it, you know, of, of um, a scratch card. But if you say, here's a photograph of a scratch card which a poltergeist has somehow ma- impossibly managed to put yeah. together, what have you got? Yeah. It's just a photograph of a scratch card, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> which is not going to convince anyone. And they also, there was a table which was somehow melted out of place, out of shape, um, kind of a bit like, you know, one of those Salvador Dali melted clocks. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then it, it somehow, when they went out of the room, it, it put itself back into shape again. So there's a photograph of the investigator kind of like holding this table and looking puzzled. But again, what have you got? You've got a photograph of a plastic table, haven't you? Yeah. Which is not evidence for anyone. And another thing that it did was, um, you know those doodleboard things like Etch-A-Sketch, yeah. which kids have? Um, it wrote, like, threatening messages on them, like, go away, go now, or, you know, die, or whatever on them. And um, it rearranged, like, cuddly toys, um, like ducks and so forth, and little animals, Beatrix Potter-type things. So they were hanging over one another with knives, um, as if you were acting out scenes of extreme violence, which, again, you know, it's it's not unknown for, for things to be, objects to be rearranged and so forth, is it? In Polskaya's case, it's quite common. But if you show those photographs to someone, in my experience, they just laugh and think, well, someone's just put them there, haven't they? Yeah. Which, you know, I'm not saying it's the case myself. I, 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 you know, the, the, the case, if you look at the South Shields poltergeist in its entirety, it seems to be very well evidenced. But if you show what purports to be evidence to someone who doesn't believe, they're, they're just going to laugh. Yeah. There was a good case in, in the book about um, Sorat and W.E. Cox, the um, American parapsychologist. Remember the one where he, he put all the objects in the fish tank Kind yeah. of like as a mini lab, yeah. And um, it's well worth looking these up on on YouTube because the ghosts allegedly um, move the objects around, and it's it's captured on camera. You know, like you said, he couldn't capture it on camera, but this is captured on camera in such a way that um, it looks even more absurd than if they hadn't captured it on camera because it's kind of done like almost you know, whenever there's a movement of an object, it triggers automatically the camera. Yeah. So the kind of um, collective record of these of, of, of these object movements makes it look like stop motion animation, kind of like um, it looks like a spiritualist version of Morph, if you remember that old children's TV yeah. program. Yeah. Um, and it, it just looks absolutely absurd. It's just like objects moving around inside the um, the. The, the fish tank or, or the mini lab, a sealed mini lab. It's supposed to be like a sealed thing which no one could get in, but the ghost supposedly could. And, um, it, you know, even when W.E. Cox showed this, he said, this is real evidence um, to, to feral parapsychologists. They just laughed at him and said he'd been conned by a magician or by yeah. filmmakers or something and, and, and basically implied he was an idiot. 
But one of the, the poltergeists behind it identified itself, whether spuriously or not, as being Black Elk, um, who was um, a kind of native Indian um, wise man and, and poet. But he was also a figure known as a Hayoka, which was the version of kind of like a trickster priest. So it was kind of appropriate that the, the poltergeist identified itself here as a trickster figure. And in many ways, it, you know, it, it did act as a trickster because it, it's, it's very interesting. If you look at an awful lot of evidence of poltergeists, whilst it may be real, it's so implausible in nature mm. that it acts as anti-evidence. Mm. Despite it being evidence, it seems to act as, to negate itself. And the cases would almost seem more believable to a skeptic if this evidence didn't exist. You know, if there wasn't this sandwich with a stupid bite mark in it, if there wasn't this ridiculous stop-motion animation of, which looks like someone's remade moth inside a fish tank, <laughs> if there wasn't... I mean, there's been some examples, supposedly, where ghosts did them. I mean, if you showed that to someone and said, oh, yeah, ghosts did this, they're going to think you're, you know, mentally disturbed, aren't they, in many cases. Yeah. So they almost seek to, to kind of provoke their own liminality. I mean, God, you can only speculate as to why. Does it get rid of skeptics, which somehow inhibit the power, which some people have claimed? Um, or who knows? There's all kinds of, of explanations you could come up with for it, I suppose. But all of them are basically just guesses. And, you know, who knows why they do it, really. But it, it does seem as if they don't give full, actual comprehensive evidence it's almost as if they're not allowed to in some mm. way or maybe they just find it amusing as tricksters not to do so who knows i mean who could ever know really i think it it is just that sense of a or un unresolvable mystery the, there is a there seems to be this strange set of rules that seems to have to be abided um, for example, you know, most of the time, in most cases, people things got to get thrown around the room, without people actually getting physically hit by these objects. Um, we, we went to visit. Yeah, a, but, but, sorry, go ahead. But, but that's interesting, isn't it? That, that um, there are very few cases, it seems, where people particularly get hurt by them. Or, or there are some cases are given the book. Um, I think it was one in the Czech Republic or somewhere in Eastern Europe where the stones. Um, which are characteristically picked up by poltergeists were thrown towards them but then as soon as they kind of almost reached them they just stopped right, and dropped dead down to the ground yeah. and yeah you know being a trickster you know the, the, the tricksters don't always obey the rules and for every case where you say that you can always find an exception where mm. stones and objects have hit people and people have suffered acts of violence I suppose so they seem to sometimes have like general patterns and you think oh, well, maybe this is some kind of rule. Maybe this is something which we could, you know, um, kind of say this is almost a scientific rule which applies to it. And yet then you find other examples which counteract this and say, well, actually, maybe it's not a rule all the time. So, mm. you know, it's, it's confusing, isn't it? It is. And you it, can look for patterns, but then the patterns suddenly disappear. Absolutely. It, 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 I suppose it's like human behaviour in a sense where we, we do follow a set of rules, but there'll be, say, yeah. someone with mental health issues that will completely, you know, counteract well, that. Well, yeah, that, that, that's true. I mean, because poltergeists do seem to have a personality, don't they? And I mean, mm. you know, you can't really have a complete rule set for human beings, can you? You can say human beings are, 
you know, you try to say human beings are essentially good, but then he could have picked up the example of, you know, anyone, Peter Sutcliffe or someone, mm. and say, well, are you sure about that? And then he could say, well, the human beings are inherently evil. And then he could pick up the example of Mother Teresa and say, well, are you sure about that? And he mm. can do the same with Poltergeist because they do seem to have personalities. So if that is the case, you know, then... Um, you couldn't have a kind of complete set of rules about them, could you? I mean, I look at um, the psychology of the trickster figure himself in the book at various times, and um, he's been described as an internal um, antinomies, which is just a basically a fancy way of saying, yes, sometimes he's good, sometimes he's evil, sometimes he's serious, sometimes he's humorous. Mm. Um, and it's that's pretty much the same as, as human behaviour itself or human personality itself. So, I mean, if the RSPK hypothesis was was correct, as as some people claim, Mm. in some cases it seems plausible, in other cases it doesn't. If the poltergeist is merely an extension of the individual human personality, of the the focus figure, the person who supposedly broadcasts it out into the world from the brain, then human beings obviously have different personalities and individually speaking, don't they? So um, in that sense, you wouldn't expect the poltergeist to um, obey rules consistently on a 100% basis anymore than you'd expect all human beings to be, you know, good or evil or rational or irrational or sane or insane. You yeah. know, um, if the poltergeist has a personality, then there's not going to be any consistent rules for 100% in every single case, is there? Absolutely. And, and one one of the things actually I really loved about the book as well is, is you speak about the different theories and you, you there's some seem to apply in some, which is one of the first I've read because people seem to be very wed to one idea. And from my investigations, it, it really relates to this where one person seems to be the centre of everything and wherever they go, things occur. And yeah. for example, the youth centre, I could go back to workers who worked there, you know, 30, 40 years ago when the activity was occurring, it will still be occurring today. So there, there does seem to be kind of these, you know, diff- different reasoning. And, and sometimes when you bring the two together as well, it really kicks off. Um, so, and and there, was, there was even one case with the RSPK theory where you spoke about in the book where um, some scientists kind of created a character and, and it, it kind of formed. Oh, the, 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 the Philip experiment in um, Canada, it. yeah, with ARG Owen. Yeah, the, 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 um, that, that was quite a famous um, example in parapsychology, isn't it? Whereby yeah. um, they held like sittings and like a seance, um, seance type group thing, and um, they basically made up the idea of this fictional ghost called Philip and gave him a fake biography. Said, um, I think he's. He had an affair with a gypsy woman who was was burned as a witch and and so forth, which none of which happened. He didn't exist. He wasn't yeah. a historical figure in any way whatsoever. But they kind of talked to him in their seances as if he existed, and then something like that manifested. It is interesting because poltergeists do seem to be, to some sense, idea plastic in the sense that they manifest according to, or to some degree, according to the beliefs of the people around them about what they might um, most plausibly be. For example, there was a case in Fircrest in, in America in 2007, which was particularly interesting because the people involved in the case evidently didn't believe in poltergeists. And when they heard, like, banging on the walls, their explanation was, it's not a ghost, it's, mm. you know, a stalker or criminals or something. And that's precisely what the poltergeist seemed to become. 
it started um, sending um, bizarre voice messages and text messages to the phone saying, I can see you, I know what you're wearing, um, don't send your kids to school today, otherwise you might get shot, right. um, that kind of thing. Um, it, it, it didn't act like a, like a typical ghost. It, it acted basically like what they expected it to be, i.e., you know, a criminal. I mean, and yet some of the things it did would appear to be impossible. So, for instance, when you were speaking with a police chief about it, you know, we were being threatened by this. When they get back home, they find on the phones and possibly like some kind of recordings of what's been going on in, in terms of the conversation with the police chief almost as if to mock them. So it's interesting that in that case, where people didn't even believe in ghosts and mm. the poltergeist apparently manifested. The poltergeist manifested as something other than a ghost, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, which, which, which is particularly confusing. Um, whereas, again, if, if you look at cases of, in the book The Hidden Folk, which is a previous book I wrote, there's all kinds of cases from hundreds of years ago in which um, people believed in furries and the, the word poltergeist wasn't even known, in which poltergeist did apparently manifest and, and kind of behave like furries are supposed to do. You can find some examples where people, in fact, plenty of examples where people have uh, been involved with UFOs and, the, and, and then uh, after that they've experienced poltergeist phenomena. Um, you can have examples of, of um, poltergeist phenomena in a religious context where they appear as either saints or demons, depending on um, what the the, the uh, individual recipient might might think. Uh, there was a case of the dark poltergeist in Canada in the late 1800s where it appeared as both an angel and the devil, <laughs> and then randomly as um, a man with a cow's head in terms of apparitions. So they, they do seem to take on um, very, very confusing um, identities which reflect the beliefs of the people around them. It's almost as if they don't have a stable personality, which again is very much like the trickster figure in, in mythology, who again is like the wise fool, which is he? Is he wise? Is he a fool? Um, is he good or is he evil? Look at the Enfield poltergeist, maybe Britain's most, most famous mm. uh, modern case. Um, sometimes it claimed it was um, uh, a dead pensioner called Bill Hobbs and gave a plausible, apparently quite accurate account of his death um, from organ failure in, in the downstairs room of the house where such a person did indeed die. Mm. And yet at other times it said, I am Fred, or it barked like it was a dog. Or at other times it said, I don't know who I am, or I don't know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Almost as if, you know, it, it in itself was a, a kind of completely incoherent potential personality rather than a stable one. Almost as if... Um, I don't know, you'd be one of them imagine like an energetic field which takes on the personality somehow of what the people around it expect it to be. I mean, you know, that's just like a metaphor. I'm not saying that's actually what it is, but that's sometimes what they can come across as being. And then they're not stable personalities, and that is one of the main characteristics of, ironically, one of the most stable aspects of the, the, the characteristics or personalities of the trickster in mythology is its instability. Mm. And that's very much the, the, the standard, if there is such a thing, standard psychology of the poltergeist. They're, they're not stable at all. They're, they're liminal. They're, one, they're neither one thing nor the other. 
much like Hermes, much like Wak Junkaga or um, Odysseus or, you know, any of the, the main trickster figures from the past. That's interesting. In the youth centre as well, the, 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 there was audible stuff and uh, it, it would change to who who would uh, be there. So uh, I, I often heard a, a woman saying, help me, um, and a, a medium came in and she, she could hear a baby crying, which other people heard. And then um, some of the other workers, I mean, these were these were social workers as well, you know, who didn't believe in this sort of thing at all at first. Yeah. yeah. And, and they would hear um, children, which is what they work with, um, and then we'd get um, actual audio recorded of a man t- speaking in Old English. So it, it was very kind of, you know, transient to whatever whoever was there. And and it was strange as well. There were some people, the cleaner, for example, who worked there um, every morning for a few hours on her own, didn't have anything whatsoever occur. And yeah. other, other workers would, would be trapped in a room and ring for help because they were too scared to leave the room because it was that active. Yeah. Um, well, well, again, that, that's interesting because if you're looking for a pattern there, there isn't one, is there? Absolutely, no, that, no. So that, 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 that's the confusing thing. And, I mean, in, in terms of the identities, one of the, the things, there's a chapter called um, Funny Disguises in which uh, it, it almost seems to be that the ghosts go out of the way to provide ridiculous identities for themselves. So some of the apparitions, seeing like the, the idea of a man with a cow's head, or um, there was a case at Willington Mill, where a number of apparitions seen. Um, someone claimed they saw a ghost donkey, which is you know stupid in itself. Yeah. Someone else claimed they saw a giant rabbit. Uh, one of the kids uh, claimed they saw a monkey. There was also a white lady, a ghost priest, and even inanimate things like cloths, which seemed to, well, you know, you should you should be inanimate, but they seem to be moving around like, um, you know, animate rags or cloths or sheets. Or a case at Sandfeld in Germany in the 1700s in which at times people claim they saw an angel or other times people claim they saw, like, crooked old men like um, dwarfs from furry tales. And at one point the children were um, in the the attic and they claim they saw an apparition of a three-legged, a giant three-legged dog, which is yellow. So, I mean, the ideas are just bizarre. Oh, there was a case in Rochdale in which um, a man claimed that a, um, a poltergeist kept on um, like making weird innuendos with, with Scrabble tiles and so <laughs> forth on a, on a Scrabble computer. And he claimed he saw the apparition once, and it looked like a gi- kind of giant humanoid insect-like thing, you know, what sounded like a black gimp suit with with the long extended chin of of the game show host Bruce Forsyth, which you know, obviously, such a thing can't exist, can it? No, it's utterly impossible. And yet, the, the person claims they saw it. Was it hallucination, or was it a deliberate attempt by the ghost to somehow? you know, appear in a willfully implausible form or or what? Or was it, you know, you can just speculate endlessly, but the identities of these things, if you look at the tale of the Bell Witch, for example, that's mm. another one in which it appeared in multiple forms, allegedly sometimes as a black dog or a dog-like animal, sometimes as an insect, sometimes it claims to be a witch, sometimes it claims to be a spirit that lived in the woods, sometimes it claims or it appeared as a young girl dressed in green, other times it appeared as multiple people all at once. 
it had various different voices, almost like multiple personality disorder. Mm. It used to have arguments with, you could say it was arguments with itself because it'd play kind of like um, different roles in a kind of invisible radio player uh, um, above the heads of the the victims, supposedly, in which um, it appears different characters with weird names like Black Dog, Mathematics, Psychography, um, and, and basically just argue amongst itself as if they were all drunk and that kind of thing. And you wonder, well, is this actually various different ghosts, as was interpreted at the time? Mm. Or was it merely different aspects of the same personality? Again, if you look at the Dag Poltergeist case, um, sometimes the ghost had set fires and um, the ghost would then say afterwards, you know, kind of apologise for this. And it wasn't me that did it. It was the evil spirit that did it, not the good one. Mm. Um, and you can find other examples of, of that happening too. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, what is the personality? Does it have loads of different personalities at once? It, it just doesn't seem to be coherent. Absolutely, yeah. Again, with this, the youth centre and, and one of the homes I lived in, um, it, it would be, be seen in, as different, you know, one one of the issues with this is, is we had to actually start renting some different rooms because some of the young people wouldn't come back in. Um, one young person I was doing a one-to-one with screamed and ran out of the room, um, yeah. st- stood outside and refused to come back in the building. And when I asked him what he saw, he said he saw a woman who just, uh, this was after there was some kind of activity. And when I said, don't worry, it's just the room settling it, it banged even louder just to say, no, it isn't. Um, but he saw a woman walk through the wall and then um, another young man who, who didn't even know the building was haunted. He was from a different area and we couldn't use the other building. Um, so yeah. I'd t- taken him there for his one-to-one, saw a, a hooded figure, which is very much what, what he wore, um, run, run through the corridor straight towards him. And then there was kind of static, like a speaker just coming out of the air everywhere. Um, and then three, three workers saw, um, we went to the top room and there was someone stood behind the window and, and obviously three people can't hallucinate the same thing at the same time and they saw it was as if someone had got some bedding and yeah. at the neck just kind of wrapped the bedding around their the head so it was almost like a, a head in just some netted netted bedding and with the then hanging down just stood you know very well, disturbingly and, behind and, the window was, was there actually any physical like sheets or bed in there or was it just like an apparition or something that looked like that it, there was it, there was all bedding upstairs. We didn't find any bedding. I, I went, as someone being used to it, went up afterwards to just open the door and go in, and there wasn't any bedding around. But the, the most incredible story, and, and if you actually know these, um, the witnesses as well, they're very credible people, were changing yeah. the bedding. There was three people. Um, so there was a, a centre room, a, a small centre corridor, and there was four dorms, yeah. and they'd had a group in that night, and... Uh, They'd, they'd opened all the dorms and the bedding was being thrown from all four rooms at once into the centre, um, which is just incredible when you think about it. That you know, you'd need four people to do that if if it was yeah, you yeah. know human activity. Um, and and similar, you know, West End Farm in Brompton, um, where, where we moved to, they um, my, my brother wouldn't go in his room again because he saw a, a man with a beard and a, a woolly jumper. Um, we saw just a, a complete, like a void in human shape that was completely black yeah. who ran around. And then um, we, we also saw a, a like a woman in a toga walking walking around outside. 
um, and who were seen by different people who, when we spoke to each other as well, um, from people who used to live there, had, had seen similar yeah. things. So again, it was that there wasn't kind of one one set set thing. So it's yeah. whether it is a, you know, this energy is created by multiple spirits, but, uh, you know, or whether it's it's this one entity. But the whole spirit thing doesn't seem to work either because no, it doesn't. in other cases, there's there's no evidence that it's someone that's passed at all. It's It's just activity. No, I mean, again, if, if ghosts are indeed idea plastic, and you know, and then they kind of um, adapt to people's ideas, then the dead spirit hypothesis is the most general one, isn't it? Mm. I and mean, that, that's what most, if you say the word ghost to someone, that is what most people automatically think, even with poltergeist, isn't it? Yeah. You know, a dead person. So, I mean, it, it, they do seem to adapt to that and sometimes pretend to be almost mm. like dead people, but I somehow doubt that they are necessarily are. Unless there's an idea in the book, isn't there, that um, someone has, um, that, you know, there's that um, uh, condition of aphasia whereby um, people can't express themselves properly because something's gone wrong in the, with, the, with the wiring of the brain. Mm. So that they want to say a certain word, like, will you pass me my glasses or something? But instead they say, will you pass the banana? Or, you know, that, that kind of thing. It's almost like if if they were coherent entities and they're trying to contact us from you know i don't know the other world or whatever you want to call it i don't know it's just it's just an idea someone had but they, they can't really contact us properly and so much as someone might say pass me the banana instead of passing my glasses instead of appearing as what they actually are they appear as a series of absurd and incoherent apparitions which you know, it's, it's not an idea I believe as such, but it was, it was certainly an interesting one. Um, it, I think it was the Victorian folklorist Andrew Lang who said that. Um, and there, is, there are some other people today in, in parapsychology who seem to have taken up a similar idea, um, which, which, you know, is an interesting one at least. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, there, because the evidence is so completely contradictory, the problem is... You can almost hang any theory you like on it, can't you? You can, yeah. And 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 sometimes it'll even if you if you come into an area with a theory, it'll completely disprove it on purpose. Yeah, I, I mean, sometimes it almost seems to take delight in disproving theories. At other times, it seems to almost take delight in in providing like fake evidence that that theory might be correct, and and then in undermining it. Mm. I've often wondered if ghosts really are ideoplastic. If um, you know, it might even be possible to get like classic poltergeists of the past to re-manifest themselves almost. Mm. So, like, if your favourite poltergeist was Jeff or something, and you happen to have a Jeff the Mongoose, if you happen to have poltergeist activity, I almost wondered if you treated it like it was Jeff the Mongoose, mm. if that would appear again or something like that. You know, I mean, it'd probably be an unethical experiment to just kind of get someone to try, but it'd be interesting. Yeah, yeah, that that, that is really interesting, definitely. Um, the the RSPK theory um, yeah. is 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 really fascinating, and I, I don't know what one of my kind of hypotheses is. You know, it's completely there's no evidence. It's just something I thought is if you look at kind of um, string theory, and is there is there another because it's often around a teenage girl, isn't it? And is there another troubled teenage yeah. girl in another dimension that's that is potentially having a tantrum, throwing things, and then the energy is being picked up in a another field. 
yeah, I mean, that, that's the, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, even string theory itself is is, is somewhat dubious in, mm. in in a lot of people's estimation, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's that title of a book about it called um, "Not Even Wrong," which <laughs> some people say it's it's just like an elegant mathematical theory without any evidence for it. And I think that uh, w- with poltergeists, I mean, y- you can invent theories like that, and mm. um, and they say you don't actually believe it as such. It's just an interesting idea. Mm. Um, I think that they do act as a peg in which you can basically put any theory you like on them, mm. in my opinion. Um, I remember that there was the, the actor Ken Campbell who used to say, um, not necessarily that this thing is true, but wouldn't it be interesting if this thing was true? And if you look at, there's a chapter in there um, called, um, what's it called? Something like... Um, theatres of the absurd in which you kind of explore the way that some of the narratives like um, which adopt you know some of the narratives adopted by poltergeists particularly ones who pretend to be something as as absurd as time travellers if you remember that chapter Mm, the the narratives they almost act as science fiction stories in and of themselves, don't they? So, like, for example, while the idea you had about string theory might not be able to be provable, you could still say it's an interesting idea and someone could know that or get an interesting science fiction short story out of it. Mm-hmm. Or uh, the idea that I just had about recreating Jeff the Mongoose somehow, yeah. again, might be implausible, but again, you could get an interesting sci-fi story out of it. And the idea of um, time travel is obviously interesting that you can get sci-fi stories out of it, it seems almost then giving that example as if the ghosts or maybe the people who are perceiving the ghosts are are kind of writing their own interactive sci-fi theatre in some way. Um, It seems like um, almost a form of interactive theatre in in some senses of the word. Yeah, definitely. I I mean, I I had some friends that used to come round and really enjoy um, coming to Brompton to see the activity. And uh, yeah, and it yeah. and it would always entertain um, when that occurred, and if someone was scared, it, it would do things that was a bit more intimidating as well. You know that in wow. in in but especially people that didn't believe, they would yeah. they'd be the ones that have the hair pulled or growls in their ear or you know just um, bangs around them, and if someone else believed it, it, it would almost be more entertaining, entertaining and do yeah. things on command as well, which was interesting. You actually do things on command, does it? Yeah, we. And again, this is a, another perfect piece of um, the, the whole hypothesis that they they would do something and provide you evidence up to the point where it's absolute evidence. So, um, yeah. I'd ask it to move things, and and after about maybe three times of asking it, it generally would. Um, even mm-hmm. you know the, the the biggest one was it, it lifted a bed up with someone on it, which is um, I I couldn't do. Um, no, but, but no, we no. we were filming it. We we got we got a phone and we we filmed this. We put a ball in the centre of the room, and we said, you yeah. know, could could you please move this ball? And um, and we were recording it, and the the ball on the third time of asking shot in the air with such force it actually knocked the thing on the ceiling on the floor. And we were really astounded that we got this on, uh, on on video. And then when we looked at the video, the camera turned around and he was recording his face. So <laughs> it, it just didn't pick it up. And, and when we when we you know we got two cameras to make sure it definitely happened, it just wouldn't entertain the idea. Well, that, that, that's like um, there's an example in the book from the South Shields poltergeist, whereby someone managed to capture, I think it was a bottle moving on a camera phone. And uh, he sent the investigators, you know, the, the, the film footage, the digital film footage 
but when he put it onto his computer, the file just said, ha-ha, and then disappeared. <laughs> Which yeah. you know that, that, that was the title of the I think that was the title of um, the the file which shouldn't have been the title of the file obviously on on the computer and then it just just vanished so it is interesting that that can happen it is but, I mean if you say it obeys commands there are certain examples in the books aren't there of um, mm. people who almost have a friendly poltergeist who they can request um, might provide them um, like you know like a port. Um, that kind of thing, like objects mm. you want, and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, sometimes they can even be friendly. There was that. There was that case that you wrote about where the the the, the lady eventually died, but the, they didn't know this, and they were trying to almost do things to make the couple come together, wasn't there? Oh yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know what their names were because they've given anonymous names, but yeah, it kept on apporting things to bring them together, like um, or getting rid of things mm. to bring them together. Like for example, um she'd she'd want to she'd want to go out to the house away from her husband and it'd steal away her car keys mm. or um she wanted to get the train home and it'd steal away her money so she had to call her husband up and it bring him together um so they'd have to spend more time together. So that was that was almost like the RSPK hypothesis. It was almost like it was playing unconscious um marriage counsellor wasn't mm. it in some ways yeah really it's, it's fascinating and the the um what what's really interesting is is again what i loved about the book as well is is you know there's the rspk theory but then the for example the youth center i was talking about doesn't work with that theory because it's no. it's you know been there f- forever no matter who's there and and you really kind of remained ambiguous with the book and and very much as in again that's part of its whole um, the, the whole kind of reason for the poltergeist in, in being is to to completely disprove anything that you want to come up with. No, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it, it it really is just again like the trickster. It's it's all things to all men, basically, or like the idea of the human personality. I mean, mm. it's neither one thing nor the other. It's inherently liminal. It's inherently borderline. It can be whatever you want it to be. And it is that that. It, it finds things funny again. One, one, we, things were getting so bad at the uh, youth centre that we we brought in a team to try and get rid of whatever was there. And yeah. uh, one guy was getting really, um, really kind of feeling this whatever it was. And so they hypnotised him to try and talk. And I, I'd never met this guy. He only knew my name was James, and he was actually from another county. So there's no way he could have looked me up or done any research. Yeah. And um, they said, what's your name? And he turned and looked at me straight in the eyes and said, my, my brother had passed away and then thought it was hilarious and started laughing, you know. And it, again, it was this very much just ridiculing humanity in a way. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, 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 again, it's, it's confusing in terms of the personality, isn't it? I mean, the, you know, I mean, who, who knows why that could have happened? I mean... You can just say what you like about it, almost. Can't you? Yeah, yeah, and and there's this kind of again look at that that almost you know the poltergeist is plasticine that can morph like morph into whatever shape and do whatever it wants. Is that the whole thing of 
that you know we're very much in a culture at the moment that it is it's ghosts and the tv shows are about ghosts and so it presents itself at ghosts and it's almost like the you know a bird has that information as if it's plucked out the air that a cat's a predator while it can land on a a horse and not get killed and certain berries are okay and other ones are poisonous They, they just seem to be able to have that information and it's almost like a poltergeist can can do that as in you know okay someone died in the house um you know, like we talk about Enfield, he died of yeah. this in that house, and I'll plot that information up. But if you ask me, you know, what I did in the office this morning, I'll, I'll probably know that as well. This, this, it seems to just yeah, have I mean, that it, eternal it, it, information. It, it does seem to be able to access information, kind of impossibly in some way. I mean, you know, some people have tried to link that to the RSPK hypothesis, haven't they? In the sense that it's tapping into people's minds and uh, memory banks or their data banks um, mm. and that kind of thing. Uh, but again, who knows? <laughs> yeah. So, but just before we go, um, I'd just like to ask you what what is your favourite case? Uh, well, my favourite case was, was probably Jester Talking Mongoose mm-hmm. that we talked about. I thought that was a good one, and uh, but we talked about him. So, what about the Bastard Sea Poltergeist? That was a good one. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that, that one with um, Shirley Hitchings and Rums in the 1950s. I think the BBC are actually making a play out of it for the radio this year. All right, OK. The newspaper. Uh, but that, that, was, that was an interesting case because she was, um, it, it was... It was a particularly absurd one. Again, it was very um, plausibly documented and so forth. But a, a key appeared on a bed one night, which again is a kind of... I go into the book how keys and locks seem to be symbols of, of Hermes because... In the past, mm. in Greece, ancient Greece, keys often came stamped with an image of Hermes, and there are plenty of cases of locks being picked by ghosts, that kind of thing. Um, but then it kind of tried to trap her in the kind of liminal sense of, of um, adolescence rather than allowing her to grow up into adulthood. For instance, it, it stopped her from getting a proper job for a while because you know, she just left school. Um, she was about must have been about fifteen or sixteen or something. I, I forget precisely, but um, she got jobs in apartment stores or banks. But it kept on disrupting work there to the extent that she might get sacked, or mm. it hide a key so she couldn't go out the house, or it threatened to set fire to the house. And it kind of seemed to be kind of trying to keep her in a state of perpetual adolescence and. When eventually she broke out of, of that um, and, and got married and settled down with, with someone, then the ghost disappeared, which was interesting. But it was also interesting how the ghost seemed to pick up on these ridiculous, clearly false personalities. It claimed to be the Dauphin, um, like a, a French prince who um, had supposedly been, um, you know, like a long lost French prince from the days of the French Revolution who supposedly fled to England and then drowned in the sea, which is a completely false story. <laughs> but it, it, it made up a kind of completely fake narrative for itself, so it seemed. And um, it, it was just a particularly absurd case. But again, it did seem to be plausible. But it was interesting how she could be mocked in the media mm. Um and kind of made to be liminal or borderline herself because some of the evidence sounded r- ridiculous. And um, the, the newspapers tried to make out that, for example, the ghost in some sense, in headlines at least, lived in a big toe in the sense that she was supposedly making all these rapping sounds with a with a big toe, <laughs> which didn't sound terribly plausible. And some visitors to the home, they even heard the rapping on the bus when they went back home. 
I mean, it seems rather impossible that she could have been doing that, doesn't it? But, it is, um, uh... it's, just, it's just a very interesting case in the way that it tried to enforce the focus figure's own liminality in some way, which I thought was interesting. I mean, the fact that it was so extreme, you know, that she, she, the, her managers would say, sorry, we just can't have you here anymore. You know, that's yeah, multiple yeah. witnesses. It was a, an amazing case. I, I love that one too. Yeah, I mean, but, but some of the stuff there as well, in which it made predictions about um, uh, car crashes involving a, an obscure, or now obscure, um, teenage heartthrob um, mm. film star called uh, Jeremy something, I can't remember. But it tried to make a kind of almost fake religion out of him. Like, she, as many teenage girls, she had like a photograph of this um, actor on a wall. Mm. But the ghost seemed to make it weep tears like um, one of those miraculous images of Christ and that kind of thing. That was, I mean, it's the kind of stuff that's almost no one would believe, but it seems to have been, um, you know, it seems to have happened. And then it made predictions about this Jeremy being involved in a car crash, which yeah. sort of came true. But then it made other predictions like, oh, a plane's going to crash into your house now which didn't come true. So it was a confusing mixture of truth and lies, much as you might expect from a poltergeist or a trickster. That was it. It, so, would, it would make predictions and, and make you really believe, didn't it? And then, so yeah, then when yeah. the next one had come, you'd be really concerned because actually the other two yeah, came yeah. through. But it was completely false. It's <laughs> amazing. Uh, there is almost something in the human mind for most people, not everyone. And, um, and I'll just quickly tell you one of my kind of things that I'm researching at the moment. But there seems to be, you know, for example, my, my friend Andrew rang me up um, and said, I can't believe it. I've, I've just heard a voice. Um, and he's a complete non-believer. He's, he's one of these almost yeah. uh, religiously non-believers. Um, yeah. He said, "Someone's just I'm on my own and someone's just whispered in my ear and I'm in Paris and it was in English. But then when you speak to a, you know, a couple of days later, it's almost as if they've they've denied it, and that seems to be a real yeah. theme. Rationalised it away. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is possible to do with things like that, though, isn't it? In terms mm. of rationalising it away, because obviously people can have auditory hallucinations yeah. perfectly, you know, non-paranormal at all. So a lot of the evidence that that's what I was saying at the start about, um, you know, with poltergeists. If, for instance, it smashes a cup or a window or something, then that cup or window is smashed, mm. isn't it? Whereas with something like a voice or an apparition, it is very easy to just think, well, maybe, maybe just sorry. imagine it after a while. Yeah. So maybe that's why poltergeists are one of the most interesting forms of uh, fertile phenomena in my view. Definitely. So um, one of the things that I've kind of noticed... Um, you know when i look at myself as well i've got kind of acute adhd and um a lot of the people who seem to have poltergeist activity around them seem to be neurodiverse um so you know adhd or autism um yeah there's the example of tina resch in the book isn't there yeah yeah um if you remember her she she was um she certain like neurological issues of some kind, and what was interesting was that the investigators seemed to say that she seemed to have um, a low sense of boundary between the self and the outside world. Like for example, she might be clumsy, like you know, like dyspraxia type thing, That's where right, like, yeah. she she couldn't completely know the, um, the 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 difference between the boundary between the world and her body and that kind of thing. And that's almost like the poltergeist is in the RSBK theory, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah, and and you know when. 
if you look at children, this is my kind of theory. If you look at children, children have seem to have this ability a lot more, and things they seem to be in between the borders. And you know, neurodiversity, the the brain evolves in a different way. And you know, I think potentially they could maybe keep some of those elements of the childhood parts that that can kind of interact with with that activity in a sense yeah i mean i mean a, a, a child's mind is, is rather like a trickster's mind in certain ways isn't it with all the pranks and so forth that we might play it's make-believe and certain... gentle and play like isn't it as, as a child that's what you're yeah. doing you're playing all the time yeah 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 and the poltergeist does kind of play in many ways doesn't it yeah it's all for its own entertainment most of the time it seems yeah it seems so <laughs> so where where can people get the book um, well, it's, it's, it's in bookshops, um, presuming that any of them are open, or you can get it from Amazon, um, or the publisher is Amberley, Amberley Books, so you can go to their website, Amberley Publishing, and you might be able, you'll be able to get it there. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been fantastic. That's no problem. Okay. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thank you. So there you go, everyone. I hope you really enjoyed that. Really refreshing to hear someone with with just different viewpoints and a different way of looking at things very very interesting man um and what he told me actually when we've, we we were off air is i asked him what he's working on now and i just thought i'd tell you all because i think you're all going to be really excited to to get this one as well he's uh, written a book on nazis and ufos and as it says d tucker it's not what you think it's going to be it's not like a documentation of the uh, the nazi bell and things like that his uh, his he's the history and the characters that are behind it all as propaganda to get ufo obsessed kids into the nazi uh, ideology so that is going to be a fascinating book and uh, one i'll be definitely be adding to my collection as soon as it's released so thank you so much for listening as i say i'll be recording the uh, episode part two to episode 11 uh, this evening hopefully to get that out to you um but uh, until then if you have any comments or anything you want to say about out this interview please do let me know at 14 news podcast at gmail.com or by going on instagram twitter or facebook where you can find us there so once again thank you to westy tucker and to amberly for uh, organizing the interview and i hope you enjoyed it and uh, i hope that it kind of inspired you enough to go out and buy the book um and on that i just really want to make clear this wasn't a a paid promotion um, I didn't even receive the book for free. This is literally because I read the book, found it that amazing that I got in touch with the publisher who, who arranged the interview. So um, I'm not raving it because any money's crossed hands. It really is just a, a masterpiece, which is I wanted to share that with you. And I hope that interview kind of demonstrates that. I think it has. So have a lovely day, everyone. And I will speak to you all soon. Take care. <laughs>